0: This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.
1: Good morning everyone. My name is Linda Samard, and I am a member of the Suffolk University Law School faculty. I teach in the areas of civil procedure, advanced civil procedure, complex litigation, and pretrial civil litigation. Today I am going to be speaking with Suffolk Law alumnus Tom Green. Mr Green and I will be discussing a program he chaired at Suffolk entitled Recent Developments in False Claims Act Litigation. Good morning Mr Green. It's lovely to talk to you today. I'd like to ask you if you could introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about your current practice.
0: Sure, good morning. Well, I, gr- I graduated from Suffolk Law in 1977. I've been in private practice uh, specializing in complex litigation uh, for more than 30 years and Probably, dating back, I think my first False Claims Act case was in the early 1990s, so I've been doing False Claims Act litigation for quite some time.
1: How did you first get into the field?
0: That goes back to my first case. And my first client, he was a graduate of West Point. He was working for a defense contractor, and they were working on a government-awarded contract to build a satellite phone communication system that would be used out in the battlefield and contract specifications called for that to operate in high heat if they were ever engaged in warfare in a a desert, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, he observed, he was in quality control, and he observed that the equipment was not functioning at uh, high heat, and he reported that and recorded those observations and wrote many, many memos on it. And back in the 1990s, when... Our country went to war in Desert Storm. These satellite communication systems, radio systems, were being used out in the desert, and the temperatures were well above uh, 100 degrees during the day, and the radios were malfunctioning, and the troops weren't able to communicate. They had to put bags of ice on some of the uh, units to try to keep the temperature down. When he learned of that, he wrote more memos to higher up the chain of command, and he was fired, oh, literally okay. escorted to the door. Wow. So that was my first introduction to the False Claim Act. He came to me, and, you know, false claim, uh, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later, but it can mean many different things. In that case, the equipment was not functioning to meet spec. They knew of it, and they covered it up. Hmm. So they were taking payment from the United States under a contract. Had the government known the truth, they wouldn't have been making payments.
1: Very interesting situation.
0: That, that case resulted in a recall, a repair, and re-warranty of, of the product. Wow. And, uh, and the
1: beginning of a very good practice, because yeah. that opened the door for you into these many more of these types of claims.
0: Yeah, it did, yes, yes. Yeah.
1: I know recently you chaired a program here at Suffolk Law School titled Recent Developments in False Claims Act Litigation. Can you tell us a little about that?
0: Yeah, I can. The program focused on the False Claims Act. I think maybe a little bit of introduction would be appropriate here. Yes. The False Claims Act, as you may know, is a statute that allows a private person to bring a case in the name of and and on behalf of the government to recover damages for fraud or for false claims that are presented to the government. We put the program together because there have been a number of changes to the False Claim Act over the past few years, and there really hadn't been a program like this in Boston. You may know, or some of your listeners may know, that Boston has become the epicenter for these cases, especially in the past six or seven years.
1: Is there a reason why that is true? I did know that fact, but I I don't know why that would be true.
0: Well... It is because they have quite a reputation on prosecuting health fraud cases. Mm. And since 1986, when the False Claim Act was strengthened, it has a couple of potent remedies. One is double or treble damages, and it also has a penalty provision that will allow penalties to be assessed in the amount of $11,000 for each false claim.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But since 1986, when it was strengthened, the government has recovered $29 billion from these cases, and the District of Massachusetts has recovered about a third of that amount. And If you go back to 2004, and that was the first off-label promotion case, the Franklin case, which was my case, I filed. It was a case that the government didn't intervene in. Mm-hmm. And the claim there, in a nutshell, was that Pfizer was promoting a drug for an off-label use, meaning the FDA had not the use of the drug. Mm -hmm. Of course, government programs don't pay for off-label uses of a drug. Now, there's there's an exception to that rule, but generally speaking, they don't pay for off-label uses of a drug. This theory was untested. The government didn't intervene in my case. As you may know, when these cases are filed, they're filed under seal. The government has 60 days to investigate the claims in the complaint decide whether they'll intervene.
1: What's the consequence to a private lawyer like you regarding whether the government decides to intervene or not?
0: Sure. Well, you file the case, you serve it on the Department of Justice, and then you you kind of sit and wait while they conduct an investigation. You can assist them. They interview your whistleblower, who's termed a relator. That's what the statute calls whistleblower. Mm -hmm. And during that period of investigation, you may or may not be able to assist the government. If the government decides to intervene in the case, they take the prosecution of the case over. They're chiefly responsible for it. You can assist them, Mm -hmm. uh, but they're in the driver's seat. I see. If they decline the case, then the attorney that filed it has the opportunity to prosecute the case. So he's kind of acting as private attorney general. Yep. And... The statute, the False Claims Act, provides a reward for a whistleblower. The reward ranges from 15% to 30% of the amount ultimately recovered by the government, either in a settlement or a verdict. Mm -hmm. So if the government intervenes in the case, the reward provision provides the whistleblower with 15 to 25%. Mm -hmm. And if the government declines the case and the attorney prosecutes it, the award goes up and could range from 25 to
1: 30%. I see. So it's it really is this bounty hunter idea where the members of the public are finding these areas of fraud against the government, and to encourage them to bring suit, they get a reward, a financial reward.
0: Yeah, this statute dates back to President Lincoln's administration. And back at that time in the Civil War, there was gross and outrageous war profiteering the Union Army was being sold lame horses, rifles that didn't fire, and barrels of of sawdust instead of Mm gunpowder. And Congress passed this legislation. They wanted to see a partnership between private citizens who would act as the eyes and ears of the government to see a partnership between the private citizen and the government. Very interesting. And since that time, there have been a number of different amendments that strengthened the statute and it's become the fraud-fighting tool that the government has in its arsenal today.
1: Yeah. And I know there have been some recent changes to the Act in 2009 and 2010. Can you tell us a little about those amendments?
0: Yeah. In 2009, Congress passed the FERA or the Fraud Enforcement and Recovery Act, and that contained a provision or some language that changed what's known as reverse false claims. Mm-hmm. And reverse false claims are... Avoiding or underpaying a financial obligation that's owed to the government. So before that statute, if you ducked payment or you underpaid an obligation, if that was the allegation of the grounds for bringing the suit, that had to be alleged that there was a false certification to the government. The defendant made a false certification. Mm-hmm and the false certification was the basis for avoiding or underpaying the financial obligation. Well, that's no longer necessary now, given the change that Ferra made with regard to reverse false claims. But maybe the biggest change is one that removes the Ciento requirement for false claim act cases.
1: Oh, interesting. So,
0: so now it's clear that a false record or statement doesn't need to be submitted with the intent to get a false claim paid. The false record or statement only needs to be material to a false claim.
1: Interesting. So really it's made it easier to file these claims.
0: Y- yeah, it has. With regard to Center and even reverse false claims, there have been some other changes. Those are two of the principal ones. Hmm. Most of the other changes really had to do with procedure. One of them, in healthcare legislation that was passed last year, it changed what's called the public disclosure bar. Mm-hmm. So Whistleblower, you know, files the case, and we've been talking principally about the Federal False Claim Act, but keep in mind that many states have state False Claims Acts, and 25 of the states have key-tam provisions. And when I say key-tam, that's a shorthand Latin phrase for a a longer phrase that means he who brings the case in his name and on behalf of the king.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So the Federal False Claims Act has a KETAM provision, and 25 states have similar TAM provisions. So as I said, these cases, they're filed in court under seal on behalf of the government. But not every potential relator can file a KETAM case. If they base their case on publicly disclosed information, Mm -hmm. then they'll be barred. The recent health care legislation, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act in 2010, made a number of changes to the public disclosure bar. But in general, it's now easier for a whistleblower's case to go forward. For instance, a case uh, can't be dismissed on public disclosure grounds unless the government consents. So that's a new change. It's like the government has a final veto there.
1: Yeah. So that's interesting. It sounds like there's been sort of a liberalization in the statute that allows these actions to proceed with a little bit more ease. Do you see any other indication of how these whistleblower suits will continue to evolve in the future? Is this sort of a, a situation where we're watching to see how these amendments play out and then will be followed with either further liberalization or maybe a contraction?
0: You, know, if, you if you look at just what the government spends, they spend so much on health care. I think it's over a trillion dollars is spent on Medicare every year. So I think health care will continue to be a focus of many False Claims Act cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, are
1: healthcare care and defense, are those the two primary areas?
0: Health care uh, definitely is. I, I would say, you know, over the years it goes through cycles. We've come through, really beginning with the Franklin case, the first off-label case, yeah. we've gone through a series of pharmaceutical fraud cases. And the fraud has been there have been now twenty or just over twenty off label fraud cases brought against pharmaceutical companies. There's been a period of time when you know a lot of money is spent on defense contracting and we went through a cycle of cases, defense contracting cases. I have cases now that are under seal, so I can't talk about them. I would say they're generally in the healthcare arena.
1: Interesting. Uh, and the healthcare care legislation that, you know, there's been so much discussion of, repealing, you know, not repealing it, do you anticipate that will increase these types of claims more, or do you think that's just a separate issue?
0: You know, I, I don't think, uh, I think that's probably a separate issue.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you very much for this conversation. Is there anything else you think is important to chat about?
0: It's just a fascinating area. These false claims, we talked about, healthcare area they can arise in you know overcharging government healthcare programs upcoding or unbundling schemes i mean there've been false claims in the financial service industry in the oil and gas and mining industries in scientific research any type of government funded program there is an opportunity for fraud we've seen it in environmental services to the government as i said the pharmaceutical industry is is a big area with fraudulent marketing and fraudulent pricing. Those have been two big areas.
1: Yeah. It is interesting how the breadth of the statute, you know, anything that the government touches with funding is a conceivable False Claim Act area. And as the political tide turns, it seems that the emphasis in where these cases are being filed changes. So it makes it a very useful statute. I can understand why there's a desire to use the public as the eyes and ears for the government.
0: And there's another opportunity now, or maybe another opportunity for whistleblowers. You know, just last year, Dodd-Frank legislation mandated a new SEC whistleblower program. Now, it's not quite like the False Claim Act, because the SEC whistleblower can't file a lawsuit, but if he brings a tip under that program, if he brings a tip of a securities uh, laws violation to the SEC and it results in a a million-dollar or more monetary sanction against a publicly traded company, then the whistleblower can receive somewhere between 10 and 30% of the recovery as a reward. And as I said, the tips could involve anything, you know, from securities violations, insider trading, or misreporting assets and mandatory filings. The program hasn't been put in place yet. They're still waiting for the SEC to come up with regulations. They were supposed to be... They're supposed to have the regulations presented to Congress uh, by April 21st, uh, but it hasn't happened yet.
1: Wow, very interesting. Thank you very much for speaking with me today. This has been very interesting and informative on an important statute.
0: Thanks for inviting me. I enjoyed it. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.